Let's pray again. Father, thanks so much that you're present with us by your Spirit. Thank you that you speak this word to us concerning your Son. And please do open our eyes. Please do give us clear thought. Help us to concentrate and give attention to you as you speak. Help us to trust you, uh, to believe what you teach, to uh, trust what you promise, to obey what you command. In Jesus, amen. I enjoy science fiction, though I enjoy science fiction movies more than books. I can't say I've read any of Arthur C. Clarke's works, but I'm aware of his influence. He predicted space flight, among many other things, and argued for space exploration. Even before Yuri Gagarin was the first human to make an orbit around, uh, around Earth in 1961, Arthur C. Clarke had been speaking about space travel. Now, apparently some religious person somewhere thought encountering intelligent non-human races in space would destroy religious faith. And they thought, hey, that's not a risk worth taking. Let's not explore space. Uh, Clark argued against this real or straw man. Uh, Faith which cannot survive collision with the truth is not worth many regrets. Seems fair. Uh, He's quoted here and there, uh, and the clear expectation is that if faith was ever to collide with the truth, then faith would shatter. It would not survive. To be fair, in some cases, uh, faith does match Friedrich Nietzsche's definition. Faith means not wanting to know what is true. Religious faith, scientific faith, I think both can be absolutely committed to hanging on to what is already believed and fearing encountering truth that would cause the belief to disappear in a puff of logic. Is Christian faith, is Christian faith not wanting to know what is true? Actually, I think the Bible pushes us in exactly the opposite direction. Unbelief means not wanting to know what is true. And and, (laughs) suggesting today, an, an unbelief which cannot survive collision with the truth is not worth any regrets. Unbelief which cannot survive collision with the truth is not worth any regrets. Uh, Today, this passage is five stories about five things that happens. Uh, In the first four, people are amazed at Jesus. In the last one, Jesus is amazed. And we're heading for that spectacular anticlimax. At the end of chapter four, uh, we see Jesus command nature. Uh, Jesus in a boat uh, with his disciples uh, when a huge storm blows in. Uh, Suddenly it goes from calm to chaos. It's an almighty storm. Even the seasoned fishermen have no idea what to do to keep the boat stable. They're afraid they're going to sink. They're desperate. It's just a matter of time before they drown. The boat is already filling. It's sinking. And they're panicking. But meanwhile, Jesus is sleeping. Uh, They wake in verse 38. Uh, Teacher, don't you care that we're perishing? Now, it's not obvious what they're hoping for here. But we do hear, we do see what Jesus did. 
He got up, he rebuked the wind, he said to the waves, peace be still, and instantly his words shaped reality. The wind stopped, the waves settled still, Jesus spoke and it was so. And then verse 41, the disciples ask exactly the right question. Who is this then that even the wind and the sea obey him? Now I think there's an obvious answer. It's particularly obvious for us as readers. Because Mark got us ready for this uh, when he introduced Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God. Uh, when he showed us the messenger, he prepared the way for the Lord God coming. And then after him came the Lord Jesus. But can you imagine how hard it was to think it? Psalm 108 is one place in the Old Testament which answers the question, who commands wind and sea? Psalm 108, verses 28 to, uh, sorry, 23 to 28. I'll just read them. Uh, Some went down to the sea in ships, doing business on the great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord, his wondrous deeds in the deep. For he commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven. They went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men. They were at their wit's end. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm still, and the waves of the sea he hushed. The Lord Yahweh commands the wind and sea. When his people cry out to him in their trouble and distress, he stills the storm. He hushes the waves. When the disciples cried out in their trouble and distress, to the man in the back of the boats, he stilled the storm. He hushed the waves. He spoke as God speaks. He did what God does. No wonder they ask, who is this then that even the wind and the waves obey him? The answer is obvious. God, but the disciples are struggling to think it. The way they think about the Lord God in heaven and the way they think about Jesus, who they've been following, colliding with the truth of what Jesus just did. It's unrealistic to Expect them to just take it in their stride. Mark shows us their struggle so that we'll see where the evidence pushes them, well, pushes us. That Jesus is the awesome Lord over nature. The second story begins when the boat lands in the Gentile region of the Gerasenes. Uh, Jesus steps on shore. A man runs up to meet him. Uh, actually, an unclean spirit controls this man. It's kept him living where the dead decay among the tombs. Uh, the locals have tried to control him, tried and failed. Uh, even with metal chains and shackles, they failed to control him. He is stronger than any of them and more powerful than all of them. They can't control him. Verse 5 shows us why they tried. They were tried to limit his self-harm. His life as a demon's possession is suffering. He tried, sorry, they they were trying to stop his torments. But they failed. 
Immediately, Jesus steps on shore. The man runs up to Jesus and falls at his, on, at his feet. And in something between a shout and a scream, he says, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. Now, at this stage in Mark's gospel, it's not surprising to hear a demon get it right when he talks to Jesus and calls him who he is. What is surprising is to hear this demon trying to control Jesus. And that's what he's doing. Now, adjure, adjure is not a word I can think of ever hearing other than here. Uh, it's not a word we come across often. The idea the translators are getting at is, I insist that you swear. Uh, the demon is saying, I insw- insist that you swear by God not to, to torment me. And actually, as he says that, it's the closest thing we get in Mark's gospel to an exorcist's invocation. An exorcist's spell sort of thing. Uh, you read something similar in the story about the random Jewish exorcists who decide to try to exercise in Jesus' name. It's, I adjure you in the name of. This unclean spirit, though, he's trying to control Jesus. And verse 8, actually, Jesus has already been saying what we expect him to say when an, a, a, an unclean spirit appears. He's saying, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. No invocation, just as usual, come out commands. No surprise there, but what's surprising is that he's been saying that, but the demon hasn't come out. It's not immediately so. Jesus asks him, what's your name? He replies, my name is Legion, for we are many. Now, Legion, that's three to 6,000 soldiers in the Roman Empire's army, uh, we start to see why the locals couldn't get a, get a control of this man. It maybe even explains why Jesus commands, saying to you unclean spirit, come out. <laughs> well, there's still a lot of them left, even if one of them listened. Thousands of demons possess and torment this man. Let me see, there's the, actually a huge herd of pigs nearby. Not surprised in Gentile territory. Uh, the demons beg Jesus for permission to enter those pigs, and Jesus speaks, and it's so. Uh, and the, the demons enter the pigs, and that herd stampedes into the sea and drowns. Now, where are they? What about all those pigs? But when the locals turn up, what they see first is the man. They see the man that they've tried to control. The man who screamed like a madman, the man who mutilated mutilated himself like it was his daily duty. But he's doing neither. He's dressed and in his right mind. That's frightening. For them, their instinct is there is something stronger than this guy who we could not control that has just controlled him. More powerful. Verse 15, they are afraid. They hear the story about Jesus and the man and the pigs and their fear focuses. They're afraid of the man who did the undoable, the man who controlled the uncontrollable. They beg Jesus to leave. Now, in his right mind, the man begs Jesus to let him go with him. Listen carefully to Jesus' reply 
And then look at what he did. I've put the verses on, on a slide just to, to help you see what I'm talking about. Verse 19, Jesus says, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. Verse 20, And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. Whether the man made the connection or not, Mark's setting us up to make it. Told to go and tell what the Lord God had done for him, he goes and tells what the Lord Jesus had done for him. Mark shows us the man's instinct to give credit to Jesus, so we'll see where the evidence points. That Jesus is the awesome Lord who has control over the evil spirit world. The third story starts as after Jesus and his disciples have crossed over to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. A synagogue ruler comes to Jesus and says, My little daughter is at the, at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. Jesus comes with him, and we're ready for another healing, but there's a woman in the crowd. If the crushing crowd in around Jesus, if they knew her truth, they'd have avoided the defilement of coming in contact with her. For 12 long years, she's been paying doctors who couldn't cure her. She's been longing for the day she could enter the temple again, longing for the day when her touch didn't mean defilement for those who came near her. But she's heard about Jesus. Uh, She knew she was making the people who brushed against her in the crowd unclean, but she pushed through to Jesus and touched his cloak. She's thinking, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And she is. Power goes out from Jesus and his holy cleanness makes her clean. He asks, who touched my garments? And she's trembling. Perhaps she fears the rebuke of being told, what have you done bringing all this uncleanness into this crowd? But Jesus doesn't rebuke her. He says, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. She's well because of her faith. She's well because she trusted. If she just happened to be in the crowd and come in contact with Jesus without faith, she would not have been healed. But she was convinced his power and holiness would overcome her disease and uncleanness. And because she believed, it did. Her faith collided with the truth and was confirmed. Jesus sends her away to enjoy the peace, uh, the blessing of being one of God's people. Uh, Her faith collided with the truth and shows us what is the truth. That Jesus is the awesome Lord who makes the unclean clean.
The fourth story, while Jesus was still comforting this woman, news arrived, the synagogue's daughter had died. Verse 36, Jesus said, Do not fear, only believe. I took three of the twelve, and when they get to the house, the people are wailing in grief. Jesus goes in and asks, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. They laugh at him, they mock him, really. But Jesus puts the grievers out of the house. Uh, Jairus and his wife go along, go along with what Jesus is doing, which I think is how Mark's showing us that actually they don't fear and they do believe. Jesus takes the, the dead girl's hand and says, well, really, he says something ordinary. Uh, no special invocation. He simply says, little girl, I say to you, get up. And it's so. Immediately. Immediately the 12-year-old is up and walking. Immediately the people in the room are absolutely amazed. Well, of course they're amazed. Who says to a dead girl, get up, and she does? Well, God gives life. God gives life to the dead. And they just saw Jesus give life to the dead. The man in the room. Of course they're amazed. Mark leaves us to have the evidence to our collection. Yeah, Jesus is the awesome Lord who gives life to the dead. Now, Mark's first four stories in this series, they, they, they show us Jesus' authority over nature and over the evil spirit world, over disease and uncleanness, over death. Mark's claims about who Jesus is well, they're, they're going all right, aren't they, as they collide with the truth of what Jesus did. Now, there's more to see about who Jesus is, which is why Jesus isn't particularly keen for the, the, the news to be spreading about him as miracle worker, as, de- as dead girl raiser. There's more, more to hear. But do look at the blessings he has brought in these four events. Without him, the disciples would have drowned. The demoniac would have suffered on. Uh, the woman would have got worse. The girl stayed dead. But with him, and trusting him, they thrive. Chapter 6 in this series is the spectacular anticlimax. The awesome Lord Jesus, who brought blessings of survival and freedom and peace and life, enters his hometown. Uh, Stories about what's happened around the region of Galilee have reached Nazareth. Well, it's in Galilee. Of course it's reached Nazareth. Verse 2, just like in Capernaum where we heard the first miracle and in all the other towns uh, around Galilee, Jesus teaches in the synagogue and the listeners are astonished. We hear hear them, them struggling to think it through. Where did this man get these things? What is this wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Others have asked similar questions. We've heard them. But these ones, they have unique, their own unique questions. Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? (laughs) Isn't this the bloke who grew up down the road? Or mates with his brothers were married to his sisters? 
Do you hear the struggle? They're astonished at his wisdom and authority. They know he teaches like no one else teaches. They know he's done miracles. But he grew up the road. He made their tables. He he hung their doors. There's no way they're going to follow the bloke who grew up down the road no matter what he says and no matter what he's done. John the Baptist was the prophet who prepared uh, the way for Jesus is far and away greater than him. Jesus' hometown and his relatives, they don't even honor Jesus as a prophet. And because they didn't believe, they missed out on the kingdom's blessings. And Jesus is amazed at their unbelief. Their unbelief doesn't want to know what is true. Their unbelief doesn't want to know what is true. They know he teaches with great wisdom. They know he did mighty works. But they don't want to go where that evidence points. So they don't. They don't even begin to see him clearly. They don't trust him. And they don't benefit from him. Because they refuse Jesus, they miss out on the freedom, the peace, the life he brings. The blessings which would have been theirs from Jesus through faith remain unclaimed. It's a spectacular anti-climax. Jesus is amazed at their unbelief. Is Christian faith not wanting to know what is true? Well, yeah, of course not. Austin answered. You need to know that, though. You need to, like, you need to know it deep down. You need to know it for your own thinking. It's important for conversations with friends. Biblical faith does not fear facts. When the Bible, when biblical faith collides with the truth, it confirms. When biblical faith collides with the truth, it's confirmed. It proves true. It explains our experience. It explains the world we live in. It explains what happened in history. Biblical faith wants to know what is true and thrives on on the truth. Unbelief in the gospel risks destruction when it collides with the truth. So why didn't it demolish unbelief in Jesus' hometown? The truth. Why didn't it demolish unbelief? Why did doubt and disbelief continue in face of the facts? I think one thing is just that some things just take time and thought to get clear. You know, we saw the disciples that going through the genuine struggle to understand and wrap their minds around the truth. They're trying to work, what's reality? what is reality if I know these things about God, I know these things about Jesus, and this is just, like, what's reality? 
Those the disciples struggling to work out what to believe. But the hometown, well, their unbelief, their rejection, it's something different, isn't it? I don't think this through, um, yeah, using a, a, a thought from the 17th century mathematician and physicist, Blaise Pascal. Uh, he, he captured what's going on here when he said, men despise religion, they hate it and are afraid it may be true. And when he says religion, he means Christianity. That's all that was kind of available in his, his thought world. Men despise religion, men despise Christianity, they hate it and are afraid it may be true. It's hard to take it when God says that your desires are not your best guides. When he claims that he is a better guide for your thriving than your own desires. Actually, I think with some friends, I think that, that's as far as the conversation gets. They draw a line as soon as they hear Jesus, the Bible says something that doesn't fit with what they already believe. Something about slavery or sexuality or exclusivity or hell. And it's, yeah, that can't be true. If only Jesus means accepting that, then I'm not interested. Pascal suggests they're not interested because they're afraid it may be true. Uh, Tim Keller, the bit down the bottom and small, people know instinctively that if Christianity is true, they will lose control and they will not be able to live the way they wish. So they are rooting for it not to be true. They are more than willing to accept any objections to the faith they hear. Any objections? He <laughs> grew up down the road. Where do you go if that's true? That's actually what the first little bit from Pascal is introducing, what he thinks is a good approach. Pascal suggests that the cure for this is first to show that Christianity is not contrary to reason, but worthy of reverence and respect. Then make it attractive, make good men wish it were true, and then show that it is. He's not talking manipulation or tricking people to believe something that's untrue. He's suggesting a framework for helping people see and welcome the truth. This is a possible implication that I want to follow follow through with you today. A possible implication of this passage that I'd like to spend another, another two or three minutes on. If you're curious about Jesus... If you're curious about Jesus but not yet convinced that the gospel is true, I think actually what Pascal says here is worth thinking about. I hope that being around sojourners, you're getting the vibe that the Christian faith is not contrary to wisdom, not contrary to reason. Uh, Christian faith doesn't mean not wanting to know what is true. I suspect that being around here on Sundays is helpful with that. I suspect that um, the thing, I hope that the things you hear about what we believe, about why we believe it, 
just as we hang out doing ordinary things Monday to Saturday, Sunday, is kind of helpful with that as well. Would you say that it's not contrary to reason? I hope we're making Christianity attractive. Not disguising unattractive as attractive, uh, but helping you see the goodness and blessing of knowing Jesus. I hope you hear hear and see evidence of how trusting Jesus is actually good for us. Perhaps you see, and we've spoken about the blessing of not having to prove ourselves because we know God forgives. Of not having to be in control because we know that God is in control. Not needing to fill our lives with things that, that can't satisfy because actually we're satisfied by knowing God. Perhaps you see in us that we don't fear the opinions of others because we want to please God more than we want to please them. I so hope you see and hear hints of how knowing Jesus transforms us Monday to Sunday. You know, we get to enjoy the pleasures of life as gifts from our Heavenly Father. We find our identity in our relationship with Him, not in what we've done or what we've failed to do. We know His love in spite of our failures. We live in the goodness of knowing we're forgiven and welcomed in his family because of what Jesus did. We get to be part of a local and global and eternal family. Uh, We're free from the guilt and shame of our past. We feel that freedom more and more. We're not as we should be, but we also know God's changing us. We're not what we were. And God is slowly but surely transforming us. We don't fear our deaths. We don't fear them as entry into the unknown. We look forward to the day when Jesus returns and brings all his people through his Father. So many blessings, and we get to be part of we get to be part of bringing these blessings to others who don't yet know them. People like you. <clears throat> now I, I know we could talk about it more. And to be honest, we should. Because the more you hear about it from us the easier it will be for you to see that the Christian message is good. To see that it isn't something to push away. You might even find yourself thinking, hey, they've got something good. It's clearly working for them. It's a shame it's not true. Pascal's suggestion is that if being around us helps you see that Christianity might be good, you'll find it easier to consider whether it might be true. Now, of course, step three in Pascal's process is where we want to get to. 
We want to show you that it's true. We want you to give the evidence a fair hearing, to see where it pushes you, because we're convinced that the gospel is both good and true. Because as Arthur C. Clarke never said, unbelief which cannot survive collision with the truth is not worth any regrets. Christian brothers and sisters, the same is true for our progress. Whether that's in ethics or theology, life and ministry or our thoughts, our beliefs, our habits. Anything which cannot survive collision with the truth is not worth any regret. Faith frees you to want to know what is true. Let's pray. Father, please do grip us. Grip us with the reality that you are true. The Bible, the things we believe from it, the gospel we hold to is not something to defend by hiding from the facts, but rather something to explore and come to see more and more clearly by exposing ourselves to the truth. But as we feel ourselves uh, kicking against the idea of discovering we were wrong, are wrong, help us to see that anything that cannot survive collision with the truth really is not worth any regrets. And please... May our faith and trust in you, the God of truth, free us to be eager to know what's true. Please, by your Spirit, guide us into all truth. We ask it in your Son, the Lord Jesus. Amen.